the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The Answer. Hour number two underway. Thanks for being with us. Eight minutes past 10 o'clock now on this Wednesday, the 11th morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2021. We're having a little bit of a weather issue right now. Hopefully we don't have any disturbances in the broadcast. Uh, If we do, uh, we apologize in advance, but we'll try to catch up with you as quickly as we can. So I want to dive right into this interview that I've been telling you about. I had never heard of the OECD the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. When I read this article about it, I needed to learn more because what they are pushing and what they're doing is extraordinarily dangerous. We talk on a regular basis about CRT. We talk about all of the school uh, board meetings in which parents are pounding the desks and stomping their feet and demanding that uh, school boards pull and that uh, they buck the teachers' unions, which are pushing. Uh, The CRT curricula all across the country, critical race theory as well as gender theory, pushing the LGBTQ agenda and confusing little kids about everything is, you know, all the way down to their basic biology. But the OECD is a little different because it's not an American organization. Apparently, it's an international organization pushing for the uh, children learning the need to value common prosperity, as I told you before, and that... Curricula needs to evolve in radical ways to reflect devolving societal requirements. I don't know what all that means, but I know it does not sound good. So let's bring in somebody who wrote the article. Kimberly Ells is an author. Her book is The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. She's also a policy advisor for Family Watch International, and she wrote this uh, very important piece on the OECD. Kimberly, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, 
Let's start with the most basic thing here. As I just said, I, I gave the name of the organization, but I don't know who they are, where they originate, or what they're doing. What can you tell us about the OECD? Sure. The Organization for <clears throat> excuse me, Economic Cooperation and Development was originally, uh, you know, could be thought of as a good idea. It was organized shortly after the close of World War II, and the goal was to help countries recover economically from the devastation of, of the war. And so originally the organization um, worked to support free markets and to spread those principles and things. And But over time, unfortunately, in the past several decades, the, the focus and the drive behind the organization seems to be changing and um, in significant ways. And as you mentioned in the intro, one of the things that they're pushing now is for what they call economic change, requiring, quote, new economic and social models. <laughs> so if we're looking for new economic models other than capitalism, what does that leave us with? That's, that is socialism. Um, and so that, unfortunately, their focus has turned to um, teaching socialistic principles. And, and the way they do that is quite sinister through the education systems of the world. Uh, today, this organization is kind of under the umbrella of the UN, correct? They partner with them extensively. They're not officially a, a UN entity, but they, according to my research, they partner with at least seven UN agencies, and they openly partner, especially with uh, UNESCO, which is, of course, the education arm of, of the UN. And so um, what the United Nations sets forth, you know, the sustainable development goals, the goals that's supposed to drive, you know, society for the next 15 years, and then the OECD, how they fit into the works is they, uh, one of their main initiatives now is pushing school assessments. And so that may sound harmless, and in the beginning it may have been somewhat harmless. Um, it started out as testing academic prowess, uh, you know, achievement of students. Um, but now what it is evolving into in radical ways, as you pointed out, um, is assessing not only children's uh, academic performance, but their attitudes about social issues. And then the problem with that is, well, first of all, that's problematic in itself, because why are we doing that? Why is the OEC doing that? And then what can they do with that data? And it, it's very problematic. We are talking with Kimberly Ells. She is an author. She uh, has written a very important piece about the OECD. That's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I'll, I'll come back to the educational portion of this, which is the most important thing and the reason why I asked you to come on today. But I just want to finish a, a little bit more on what OECD is. You write in your article that I read in the Daily Signal. I'm not sure if it was picked up by other uh, uh, sites or news organizations as well. But you write that the OECD also collaborates with some very interesting organizations, including Planned Parenthood, uh, the Open Society Foundations, the ones uh, funded by and founded by uh, George Soros, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Why is that important, Kimberly? Right. Those connections are, are crucial, and there's all kinds of funding connections between these organizations. And so, of course, if you look at, uh, for instance, International Planned Parenthood Federation, um, their their goals for humanity are different from, say, the, the common uh, conservative person or even many just any person as far as um, not only pushing abortion but working with uh, UNFPA uh, for population control. And so um, not only are we pushing abortion on young girls uh, through these initiatives, we're 
we're trying to change, the OECD is trying to change the narrative around abortion to make it a positive um, in cooperation with International Planned Parenthood Federation uh, to change people's views of humanity as, instead of babies being a valuable and, and blessed resource that we have to being the problem, that too many people on the earth is the problem, babies are the problem, families are the problem, and so that's, that's problematic. And then the funding connections between... Um, the, you know, the Open Society Foundation is extreme. There's many, just for instance, there's one writer named Sophie Lewis who has written for the Open Society Foundation, and she's extremely and blatantly anti-family, and she calls for the revocation of all biological connections. Like, she doesn't want the bonds between parents and children to be recognized. And while that may seem like a fringe uh, position, and in this case perhaps it is, um, the goal of the many of the Soros programs is to mainstream that narrative that uh, families are sub important and that global being a good global citizen and global connection is more important than than family. So that's that's a big concern. Uh, Kimberly Ells is my guest. She is an author. We're going to talk about her book in a moment as well. But for now, we're talking about the OECD. And you know, you you just mentioned about. This is about much more than just race, and it's about much more than just gender theory. This is about full-on uh, state control of education of kids. And you, you note uh, toward the end of your article um, uh, an example in 2012 of how the OECD not only measures attitudes uh, but changes attitudes on a societal scale. And you cite um, German education. Uh, can you tell us more about what you found there and what this 2012 example found about how Germany moved from parent education of children to state education of children? Right. So one of the heads of, of the, the OECD um, basically was bragging about, talking about what a great example the OECD is of uh, changing uh, attitudes through data collection, and he said that d- data transformed the beliefs in, uh, of people, the parents and, and policymakers in Germany. So they collected data, um, and then the spin of the data and the things that they did, the result of that was that education of the very young children before that point was seen as the business of families, um, especially mothers were seen as being an essential part of their very young children's upbringing. And we're talking about preschool age uh, children. And then he, he says, uh, Andre Schleicher, he says, PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, has transformed that debate and pushed early childhood education right at the center of public policy in Germany. And so that, that's significant. He, what he wants to have happen is to have the responsibility for education taken away from families, that that shouldn't be seen as the norm. What the norm should be is that Schools and society educates our very young children, and that's that's a big change. And we're not talking about you know middle school age; we're talking about toddlers here. And so yeah. um, the 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 power of data is significant, and they know that, and that's why they're pursuing all these kinds of assessments. Because not only this important piece, not only do they assess. Their, their point is to change the attitudes of the youth because they use that data to then make programs that reinforce what they want children to know and to believe. And so then it's, it's, very, it's very wily, it's very sinister, the way that they've put it together, and, and it's expanding. And we're just beginning to see now, I'm afraid, the front edge of, of that effort exploding in our schools right now. 
We, um, you know, we have come to see the push for critical race theory and gender theory and so forth in the United States as being exclusive to the United States because, well, you know, the, the New York Times fictional 1619 project talks about the founding of America on slavery and about how this is still a systemically racist country and white people have to be uh, you know, made to feel guilty and to be oppressed in order for them to understand oppression and, and on down the line, dividing the country into either uh, the oppressors or the victimized. Um, but what this is showing is that this is much bigger than, than the United States. Um, because, you know, you're referencing the German part of the story, you're referencing the ties to the UN, you're referencing how this was, uh, obviously something that was put into place internationally after World War II. So my question is, is how much of this do you think or do you know is baked into, um, political theory on the American left? Uh, you know, the example we just cited from 2012 in the German uh, study, um, you know, that was right in the middle of Barack Obama's uh, two terms at the beginning of his second term. Do you know if any of this was baked into his uh, administration and if it's part of the Biden administration or at least the, the leftist um, influence of the administrations? Absolutely. This, these, these things that we're talking about right now have been in, in the works for many years, even decades the left has slowly been pushing towards these efforts, and most people don't realize the international push for this. We just see, oh, this is happening in my school district, or oh, the 1619 Project, or whatever. But what, what we need to be aware of, and what well, I most think people think CRT in- was born, Kimberly. Most people think CRT was born, and this push was born uh, when George Floyd died. You know, that this was all Uh dating back to last summer, because that's when it really started to take off. But that's the reason I'm Mm -hmm. asking for the history here. I'm sorry, continue. Right. And that became, that wasn't the beginning of it. That was just an an opportunity to push it forward. But, you know, we know that the original ideas of CRT developed at Harvard and so forth. And, but, but the larger issues of pitting people against each other, um, because of levels of prosperity, because of race, all these things are, have been in the works for a very long time. And one thing I didn't even mention in the, in the article is that, that there's three things that they say they want to focus on, and this has been the focus for, for some time, is, is extreme environmentalism. I didn't mention that in the article. The other one is economic change. The other is social evolution. And those, those words can be used to mean good things, but the fact is for, for years and for decades, international programs have been pushing gently and now not so gently towards collectivism. Uh, if you want to use the extreme word of communism, valuing common prosperity uh, above individual rights and individual prosperity. And so that's a concern. And, and we've been slowly putting these things into place so that when there was an opportunity, which the George Floyd uh, tragedy was such an opportunity, then these things can be easily. I think many of us are reeling. We're like, how did this happen so quickly? How did, yeah. how did this happen to our schools? And the fact is it hasn't happened quickly the the machinery to put this into place has been working for a very long time at the international level, and now we're seeing it explode. So yes, it, this ideology is runs through the left uh, programs, uh, ideas, what they want for for the world. Yeah, that, that is that is what was news to me when I read your article. I, I kind of thought critical race theory was specific. I mean, while it was baked in in in, in you know in Marxism essentially, or it is it was drawn from Marxism uh, because of critical theory and what we know about Marx and Engels. Uh, we of course were German uh, and led to communism in, in in Eastern Europe and so forth. Um, we didn't know that critical race theory, this portion of it, was international in scope. Most of us thought it was just here something that was being pushed on American schools because of American 
American white supremacy and American white privilege. So to learn that this is international in scope is very, very important indeed. Kimberly, I'm going to ask you to hold on with me for a second. I need a time out for a commercial break. We're going to come back and we'll talk about The Invincible Family. This is Kimberly's book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. We'll be back. Okay, it's 1025. We continue now on AM 1420. The answer, I don't see these as being um, uh, opposite issues or different issues. I think you can very easily tie Kimberly L.'s book into the article that she wrote about the, OE, uh, the OECD. There is, a, there is an ongoing movement to allow the state to take over and indoctrinate your child and to replace the parent as the dominant uh, caregiver and uh, guide to, to, a, to a young child's life. Um, by the state. Kimberly, your book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Tell me about the uh, genesis of this. What was your inspiration for, for writing about the importance of mothers and fathers to fight back and retain control of their kids' development? Sure. It was several years ago. I read it. I read an article online that was published by International Planned Parenthood Federation, and, and it was about children's sexual rights. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't know that such a thing existed in the mainstream. I, I, I thought, wait a minute, what are we talking about children's sexual rights? And <clears throat> so I began to study this lengthy document in, uh, in depth, and I discovered, at first I thought it couldn't be real, because who would be pushing sexual rights for children, right? And then I realized that it was real, and what the crux of the issue is, is that International Planned Parenthood Federation and their partners believe that children have a right to sex, to sexual, to obtaining sexual pleasure, to uh, accessing sexual information, as well as to sexual services, which conveniently Planned Parenthood provides. That's what is their bread and butter, right? So right. Um, I began to see that there is this huge push to enrich Planned Parenthood itself by pushing this idea that, that children have sexual rights that are somehow a human right, to them, and and that was so disturbing to me that I decided that I was going to fight that, you know, for the rest of my life as long as it existed, and so that led to many years of, of work and volunteering, and then to, to the writing of of this book, and 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 also along with that experience of seeing this children's sexual rights movement for what it was, I also began to realize that there's a story out that hasn't been told, I don't feel, and that is that women as mothers hold what I believe is the greatest position of power in the world. And I felt like that story needed to be told in, in, in a unique way, which I feel like I've been able to do in the, in the book. But so the book in itself is an expose on the power of the family, um, and especially of fathers and mothers, and then exposing the forces at work trying to um, debunk the family and replace the family, as you said, with, with other institutions. Um, this is not a, gender war or parent war when I ask you this next question, but give me a little bit more on why you say that the mother is the most powerful force rather than the parent or the father. What's specifically about the mother? Sure, and let me say right up front, uh, 
fathers are equally important in the balance of the family and in, in upholding civilization. But what I mean, the reason I focus on motherhood is because the woman has a specific tie to her child that's physical, the umbilical cord at birth, which a father does not have. And that, that establishes her, uh, the belonging of the child to her and her belonging to the child. Of course, the father also has that connection, but it's not physical. It's invisible. So the mother has that connection. And all the great, you know, leaders through the ages and, and uh, revolutionaries, they all have known this, this secret, if you will, this fact that the, the person who gets the minds of the youth holds the future. In fact, that's what uh, uh, one thing that Hitler said is, he who owns the youth owns the future. And that's true. And if you think about it, when a baby is born, where does it come to? Always a mother. It's always a mother. Hopefully there's a father standing right there by, but regardless, there's always a mother. So the youth of the world are handed directly to their mothers, and that puts the mother in a supreme position of power and of responsibility. And, if, and, and the things that people learn in their very earliest years are pivotal to the whole rest of their life. In fact, that's what, uh, going back to Planned Parenthood, a lot of their resources say that we target the youth because it presents a unique opportunity to influence them for the rest of their lives. And that's exactly what, going back to OECD that we were talking about previously, that's why their international programs are tracking younger and younger. They see the, the, the doors hanging open to the minds of the toddlers of the world, and they don't want mothers in there influencing them. They want their ideas, their sexual rights ideas, their communistic ideas, their common prosperity ideas to be planted in the minds of children when they're very young because it is very influential. And so that's why mothers, in concert with fathers, hold the greatest position of, of power. There's, you know, what happens in the White House matters a lot, but what happens in your house matters even more and has greater influence upon your children and on what they think and on what they believe and how they're going to live their lives. That is very, very well said. And I agree with you 100%. You're right about moms, and you're right about the importance of dads being right there, and there is an equal component there. And most importantly, their weight on the development of their children should be much, much higher, much, much heavier on uh, than uh, that of the state. And I don't care if it's a public school. I don't care if it's uh, you know an organization like the OECD trying to change their attitudes. That's why it's so important for uh, parents to, to be the... Uh, the guides for their kids. Kimberly Ells is the author. The book is The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Cannot Win. Give that book a look. Buy that one. And, uh, Kimberly, great information on the OECD today. Thank you so very much. I hope we talk again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 1031, time for news. We'll come back. I've got calls. And I'm going to let you hear from Dr. Dan Stock. If you have a computer or a smartphone, you probably already have. His six minutes of information to an Indiana school board has gone viral. But if you have not yet heard it, you will, and we'll discuss on the other side of the news. AM 1420, The Answer. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Okay, I've got two important pieces of audio that I need to share with you before we're done. The first is not going to be Dr. Dan Stock, which I mentioned a moment ago. It's instead going to be a teacher. Well, now a former teacher. Maybe you saw this, maybe you haven't. 
Uh, a teacher named Laura Morris spoke last night at the Loudoun County, Virginia, public schools school board meeting. She was there to continue the discussion uh, that has been going on in the last several meetings in Loudoun County that have gotten very, very loud, in some cases modestly violent, a little pushing and shoving and take grabbing of microphones and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, they didn't even have a meeting last month because of everything that was going on. Parents are outraged at the promotion of critical race theory and this LBGTQ mafia agenda, the rainbow mafia agenda in which teachers and kids are going to have to say things about people that are simply not true, about what sex they are and about made-up words like Z and Zay and pronouns and all this other crap. So parents have been pushing back, so the school board decided to keep the parents out. Uh, now I believe they were allowing just 20 parents in the school board meeting room at a time. So in other words, it was virtually empty, so that nobody could really show support for the speaker or whatever. It was much more intimidating for the speakers, of course, to talk to the school board members. But this teacher spoke, and she she's, like I said, she's a teacher, not a parent in this case. But she's done, and she wanted the Loudoun County School Board to hear her. This is one of the most difficult things that I have had to listen to about this issue. Tell me if you agree. My name is Laura Morris. I have been a teacher in Loudoun County Public Schools for five years and a teacher for 10. In that time, I have learned so much, being on the cutting edge of educational technology and working with a diverse population of students that I have loved. This year, I have the privilege to follow my amazing fourth graders up to fifth, and I have been excited about this all summer. On the other hand, this summer I have struggled with the idea of returning to school, knowing that I'll be working yet again with a school division that despite its shiny tech and flashy salary, promotes political ideologies that do not square with who I am as a believer in Christ. After reading about your lack of consideration for the growing population of concerned citizens in this division, clearly evidenced by this empty room tonight where you shut the doors to the public as well as the emails sent by the superintendent last year reminding me that a dissenting opinion is not allowed even to be spoken in my personal life going so far as to send a form to my colleagues and i encouraging us to fill it out if we hear one another speaking against the controversial policies being promoted by this school board and adopted in this county not only that but within the last year i was told in one of my so-called equity trainings that white christian able-bodied females currently have the power in our schools and that quote this has to change. Clearly, you've made your point. You no longer value me or many other teachers you've employed in this county. So since my contract outlines the power that you have over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit. I quit your policies. I quit your trainings. And I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. I will find employment elsewhere. I encourage all parents and staff in this county to flood the private schools. I don't cry much, uh, really. Unless it's something, usually tears of joy for my kids or my family or something. But um, she she almost got me. She almost got me. This is a dedicated teacher being forced from her profession by the woke school board, the CRT, the LGBTQ mafia, 
forcing good, decent, honorable people to leave their positions because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, or their identity, because they are perceived as oppressors simply for being born white, and that they're supposed to affirm people's young children's fantasies and psychological conditions by saying, yes, you really are a dragon, or yes, Steve, you really are a girl. She can't do it. She shouldn't have to do it. She won't do it. So she quit rather than be forced to do it. Equity trainings that white, Christian, able-bodied females currently have the power in our schools and that, quote, this has to change. Clearly, you've made your point. You no longer value me or many other teachers you've employed in this county. So since my contract outlines the power that you have over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit. I quit your policies, I quit your trainings, and I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. I will find employment elsewhere. I encourage all parents and staff in this county to flood the private schools. Her last line there might have been the most important line. Encouraging all parents flood the private schools, flood the charter schools, Take up homeschooling. Do something to get your kids out of those toxic, non-scientific, in fact, science-denying atmospheres known as the public schools. Get them out. Get them out as quickly as possible. Because those schools are only worse for the fact that Laura Morris isn't one of the teachers in them anymore. Good teachers who actually care about the kids will turn on the, uh, their teachers' unions. Good teachers will turn against the school boards and the administrations. And they will not allow children to be judged based on their skin color. They will not allow themselves to be judged on their skin color. To be told that white, Christian, able-bodied females or males have too much power in the schools, and that has to change. Telling them, we don't value you. In fact, we want less of you. That doesn't make for a good school system. These ridiculous policies of diversity, equity, and inclusion are destroying schools. And once you destroy schools, what do you destroy along with them? The children. And once you destroy the children, what do you destroy along with them? The adults they are going to become. And meritocracy will be a thing of the past. Working your hardest and getting rewarded for your achievements will be a relic of a bygone era sitting back and waiting for your handout, your equitable distribution of whatever it is that somebody else have will be the new normal. This is what they're guaranteeing. So I wanted to share that one with you. And I want to share one more with you now. This is the one that I talked about a few moments ago. It's also in front of a school board, but instead of Loudoun County, Virginia, it is Mount Vernon Schools in Indiana. Dr. Dan Stock will speak for himself here as he talks to the school board, not about critical race theory, but about COVID-19 policy and the 
non-science, the anti-science, quite frankly, of masking and vaccines against a coronavirus. This has gone viral. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you saw Dr. Dan Stock on Tucker doing a follow-up interview on this yesterday. I did. But if you have not yet seen nor heard Dr. Dan Stock, you're not missing anything with the video here. It's just a man at a microphone talking to the school board. You need to hear what he has to say. And perhaps you need to record what he has to say. Go back and listen to it. Find the video for yourself online or go back and listen to it on whkradio.com after we're done. But you need to save this and make the same exact arguments against mandatory vaccines and mandatory masks in your kids' schools. Listen to Dr. Dan Stock. This is six minutes, a little longer than I normally like to do, but every second of this is important. Please listen. Um, to, to address your comment, gee, it's hard to believe we're 18 months into this and still having a problem. And I would suggest the reason we still have a problem is because we're doing things that are not useful. And we're getting our sources of information from the Anastate Board of Health and the CDC, who actually don't bother to read science before they do this. Um, I'm actually a functional family medicine physician. That means I am specially trained in immunology and inflammation regulation. And everything being recommended by the CDC and the State Board of Health is actually contrary to all the rules of science. So the things you should know about coronavirus and all other respiratory viruses, they are spread by aerosol particles, which are small enough to go through every mask. By the way, the literature that supports all of that is in a flash drive that we presented to you has been given to the secretary. As a matter of fact, it quotes at least three studies sponsored by the NIH to that exact fact, even though the CDC and the NIH have chosen to, avoid, to ignore the very science that they paid to have done. Um, that is why you keep struggling with this, is because you cannot make these viruses go away. The natural history of all respiratory viruses is that they circulate all year long, waiting for the immune system to get sick through the winter or become deranged, as has happened recently with these vaccines, and then they cause symptomatic disease. Because they cannot be filtered out and they have animal reservoirs, and this is a very important point, no one can make this virus go away. The CDC has managed to convince everybody that we can handle this like we did smallpox, where we could make a virus go away. Smallpox had no animal reservoirs. The only thing it learned to infect was humans. That's why we were able to make that virus go away. That will not happen with this any more than it will with influenza, the common cold, respiratory syncytial virus, adenoviral respiratory syndromes, or anything else that has animal reservoirs. So the reason you can't do this is because you're trying to do something which has already been tried and can't be done. Equally important is that vaccination changes none of this, especially with this vaccine. And I would hope this board would start asking itself before it considers taking the advice of the CDC, the NIH, and the State Board of Health, why we are doing things about this that we didn't do for the common cold, influenza, or respiratory syncytial virus. And then ask yourself, why is a vaccine that is supposedly so effective having a breakout in the middle of the summer when respiratory viral syndromes don't do that? And to help you understand that, you need to know the condition that is called antibody-mediated viral enhancement. That is a condition done when vaccines work wrong, as they did in every coronavirus study done in animals on coronaviruses after the SARS uh, outbreak and done in respiratory syncytial virus, where a vaccine used in a vulnerable individual done the wrong way, which cannot be done right for a respiratory virus, which has a very low pathogenicity rate, causes the immune system to actually fight the virus wrong and let the virus become worse than it would with native infection. And that is why you are seeing an outbreak right now. In fact, in that 
flash drive you're going to have coming to you, and in the emails with six extra, there will be a study showing that 75 percent of people who had COVID-19 positive symptom cases in Barnstable, Massachusetts outbreak were fully vaccinated. Therefore, there is no reason for... You know, I kind of want to interrupt some of this just to, you know, reinforce the points that are made there. And obviously the crowd did there, too, when they decided to applaud. But are you, are you understanding what he's saying? Vaccines will not stop the spread of coronavirus. The vaccinated are spreading it just as much and, in fact, perhaps more so than the unvaccinated. Now, does it hit the unvaccinated a little bit harder? Possibly. But it is not being spread by the unvaccinated. It's being spread by the vaccinated because it's a coronavirus, and there is nothing that is going to stop it. Not any cloth masks, not any surgical masks. None of this is going to stop it. And for schools to put, or anybody else to put mandatory vaccine passports uh, into play as laws and policies is not only reckless, it's, it's dangerous. Let's keep listening. Treating any person vaccinated any differently than any person unvaccinated. Go you back. should also know that no vaccine. Coming to you and in the emails with six extra, there will be a study showing that 75% of people who had COVID-19 positive symptom cases in Barnstable, Massachusetts outbreak were fully vaccinated. Therefore, there is no reason for treating any person vaccinated any differently than any person unvaccinated. You should also know that no vaccine, even the ones I support and would give to myself and my children, ever stops infection. In 2014, there was outbreak of mumps in the National Hockey League. The only people who came down the symptoms were the people who were unvaccinated or unknown vaccine status. Boy, that sounds like a great argument for vaccines. But a question that you should ask yourself, knowing that half of the people who came down with symptomatic disease had no contact with an unvaccinated or unknown vaccine status individual, where did they get the disease? And the answer was from the vaccinated individuals. No vaccine prevents you from getting infection. You get infected, you shed pathogen. This is especially true of viral respiratory pathogens. You just don't get symptomatic from it. So you cannot stop spread. You cannot make these numbers that you've planned on get better by doing any of the things you're doing, because that is the nature of viral respiratory pathogens. I just want to hit that again, and I apologize, but you cannot stop the spread. Nothing that you are doing is going to stop that spread because it's the nature of viral respiratory pathogens. And you can't prevent it with a vaccine because they don't do the very thing you're wanting them to do. And you will be chasing this the remainder of your life until you recognize that the Center for Disease Control and the Indiana State Board of Health are giving you very bad scientific guidance. And instead, read the articles that are going to come on the email and are on this flash drive and listen to the people in this audience here tonight who actually have recognized the advice they are getting from the CDC and the NIH is counterfactual. And that's why you're still fighting this with this vaccine that supposedly was going to make all of this go away, but has suddenly managed to make an outbreak of COVID-19 develop in the middle of the summer when vitamin D levels are at their highest. By the way, the other thing that would be necessary, any vaccine restriction to be considered is if there were no other treatment available. And I can tell you, having treated over 15 COVID-19 patients, that between active loading with vitamin D, ivermectin, and zinc, that there is not a single person who has come anywhere near the hospital. And we already have studies that show that if you achieve a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level greater than 55, your risk of COVID-19 death will drop down to one quarter of the population average for the United States. 
and there are active treatment trials included on that flash drive, but this show the same is true. So if you were going to discriminate based upon vaccine, you should also discriminate based upon 25-hydroxyvitamin D level, zinc taste test response, and probably previous infections, since there are also studies on that flash drive that show that people who have recovered from COVID-19 infection actually get no benefit from vaccination at all, no reduction in symptoms, no reduction in hospitalization, and suffer two to four times the rate of side effects if they are subsequently vaccinated. Therefore, the policies that you are basing on are totally counterfactual. I don't blame this board for that, because I know you aren't scientists and you've thought it was reasonable to listen to the CDC, NIH, and the Indiana State Board of Health, but I would encourage that instead you listen to the people out here in this audience and read what's on that data drive. And if anybody here in this board has any questions about anything on that, I will happily come back and sit with you individually if you would like to explain the science behind this. And if you're worried about being sued by somebody because you don't follow the guidance of the CDC and the NIH, I will tell you have a free pro bono expert testimony at your disposal. I will testify in defense of this board, turning down all these recommendations for free at any time in any court. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Dan Stock, Mount Vernon School Board in Indiana. That went viral, and of course the left is going ballistic trying to discredit him. He is spot on. The science is on his side. Why? Because he sourced it on that flash drive with articles and studies. The one thing that the left cannot do. We'll be back. The answer is 1420 AM, 102.5 FM. Ten fifty-eight. I've got time just for TJ. Hey, TJ, go ahead, my friend. You know, Bob, that uh, testimony of that teacher moved me so much. You know, to display that kind of courage to put your career, you know, your livelihood on the line. Yeah. You know, I've seen that kind of courage in combat. Never thought I'd see that here, like in civilian life. This woman did it today. And it should set an example to us. It's time for us to man up and woman up and start showing that same courage and the hell with the consequences. I mean, she really moved me. Me too. She got me. Like I said, I almost, you know, almost uh, had a had a little uh, little uh, bubbling up in my eye sockets, uh, and uh, I held them off. But she, her tears were real. Her tears were genuine. And again, she loves kids. That's the sad part about it, TJ. The school that she was in now is poorer, and I don't mean financially, but it's poorer for her not being there. Those kids are going to be in worse shape because she's not there. That's somebody who cares about kids and would rather do, do right by kids uh, than, than stay in that classroom under the orders she was given and do wrong by them. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate your call. That's going to wrap it up for us. Thanks to Jack Windsor. Uh, thanks so much to uh, Kimberly Ells. Thanks to you for listening and being a part of the show today. Thanks to John, by the way, running it solo all week long. Great stuff. We'll see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.